session today. Our first question and answer session. We set aside two days for for this activity this year, as it seemed there was a an interest for that, and uh, we usually ended up with almost more questions than we could answer, and kind of try to squeeze them in an hour and so forth. So we've got today and we've got tomorrow, and they just told me that we have a good number of questions for tomorrow already. So we're good to go, I think. So, all right, Um, and what we do here generally, uh, I read the question, and we give you young men some opportunity to respond to the question. Now, you haven't had time to think about it, but we do give you that opportunity. If any of you, if there's a question you'd like to respond to, we give you opportunity, and then we give our panel opportunity as well. So that is the format. We have ten questions today, and uh, we'll try to wrap it up in an hour, in an hour's time. So, all right, let's uh, just bow our heads and commit our hour to the Lord. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we are thankful again this afternoon. Thankful for the opportunity to be here in this way. Thankful, Lord, that we have the freedom to organize and, and have meetings like this in our country. Lord, pray that um, we would not take these opportunities for granted, but realize that they are a gift and a blessing and, and uh, seize, seize the, the opportunities that are before us. And Lord, here we are. We have uh, some questions, someone uh, different individuals here had have expressed things that are on their hearts that uh, they have questions about, and and we thank you for that. And today we pray that as we consider these questions, that we could uh, f- find scriptural solutions. That is our heart. And so bless us, bless this hour, and uh, guide our thoughts, our meditations as we confer together here. Thank you, Lord. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right. And do we have microphones available if the youth want to respond, the young men? Okay, very good. All right. The first question is this. Is there ever a time a deacon or elder can misuse their authority? If so, how do you relate to them? So we have two questions there. The first one is whether there's ever a time a deacon or elder can misuse their authority. And what's the answer to that question? And then, based on the answer to that question, how do you respond? Um, How do you relate to them? If uh, I guess uh, the second part would be if so, how do you relate to them? Yes, that's assuming the answer is yes. So let's, uh, any, any of you young men care to respond to that question? In any way? Up here? 
Um, I don't, I don't, I can't think of any scripture to back it up, but I get the idea that um, a deacon or elder probably could misuse their authority, but I'd be very quick to blame it, um, one of them for doing something like that. So, well, if you're, yeah, I, I'm not going to go into detail, but um, I think we should try to honor our leaders as much as possible, as long as it doesn't go against the Bible. Okay, anyone else? Oh, okay, sure. I mean, we're definitely human, everyone is, but yeah, you definitely have to respect the leaders, that's important, but... They're human, so it is possible that they can fail. But uh, at least for elders, you're supposed to treat them as a father and not rebuke them. Okay. Anyone else? Thank you. Okay. We have one here? Okay. Yep. I would, as was mentioned, I would be very slow to feel they're misusing their authority, but I do feel that we have examples of ministers misusing their authority in the scriptures. Um, well, not necessarily ministers, but also ruling powers and authorities. When, Like, for example, when David took a census, there was nothing absolutely wrong with taking a census, necessarily. But it was something God had said not to do originally, and he didn't ask God for permission to do it beforehand. And so I would feel that if the ministers are not following in, in order with God's word, then maybe there is an issue, and then we should go to them and entreat them as a father. Okay. Anyone else? I would definitely say that, um, they, like, like was mentioned, they are human. I feel they can easily make a mistake. Or, but um, one thing that I really see is important is, um, in order to respond to it, is to pray for them and to not talk uh, about them behind people's backs and, like, gossip about leaders um, to pray for them instead. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Anyone else? Okay. Any comments from my panel? The short answer is yes, it can be abused. Any authority can be an abusive authority without a doubt. Uh, Something I think that is important is that leaders are accountable. And so if a leader is being accountable to other ministry or to the people, maybe... Maybe sometimes it can be perceived as abuse or out of out of order. But that uh, whole thing of elders being accountable is very important. Elders must be entreatable. In other words, I would like to so position myself that if you have an issue with me, anyone has an issue with me, that they would have the freedom to come to me. I would encourage that 
if you're a young person and you feel like your authority, church authority, is out of order, that, that you would be very careful in being discerning before just accusing. And it might be wise for you to appeal to your parents, to your father, or to your mother, and just, you know, this is what I'm seeing. How do you see it? Sometimes we're very quick at saying, well, that's gossip. Well, not if we're going sincerely to an adult to just hear ourselves out whether we're seeing something straight or not. Because so often, you know, we're looking at things uh, maybe not in the right way. So I think it's really important to get others involved. And as we were discussing it, uh, one of the things that John mentioned is verse 9, Jude, yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, had disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke thee. And one of the things we talked about a little bit is sometimes, sometimes we want to straighten something out, and maybe it'd be better if we just prayed about it and allowed God to straighten it out. Times that goes a lot better. I'm not saying there's no time to respond. There is a uh, passage in the Psalms, I should have uh, tried to look this up, that talks about relating to an enemy that if you take things into your own hands, then the Lord will withdraw and let you take care of it, and the enemy will actually get off easier than he would have if you let the Lord deal with it. And so I, I think we need to be aware of the fact that when we interfere with something that we shouldn't interfere with, we actually do uh, take it into our own hands, where if we would handle it the way we should, uh, God does have his ways of dealing. Uh, so I, I think... We need to really, really be careful. I mean, uh, David refused to lay a hand on Saul. Uh, Saul was totally out of his place. He was a, had a murderous heart. Uh, but David was, he said, I won't, I won't touch the Lord's anointed. Now, I, I'm sure that can be carried to an extreme, but I, I think we tend to go the other way. We tend to be a lot quicker to disrespect, and, and, and there should always be respect. I mean, Daniel and his friends made their appeal about the food. Uh, they didn't rebel. Uh, so a rebellious, resistant attitude probably isn't going to accomplish anything. It probably will not get God's blessing. So I'm not saying there's not a place for an appeal, but when it's a situation where there's an authority involved, I've learned that you really, really do need to search your own heart and be very careful because you are stepping onto territory that uh, does belong to God, and, and he wants to take care of it in his way. I have in a couple of times in my life where either it was someone towards me or me towards authority where uh, it was tried to be handled and, of course, it got really messy. But once, whether it was my situation or someone towards me, laid it down and began to pray. It's amazing what God will do. I think maybe that should be our first recourse rather than the last all through very good thank you thank you all for your responses there appreciate that okay second question 
Why is social drinking wrong? Anyone care to tell us an answer to that? Up front here again. My question is what is social drinking? <laughs> what is social drinking? <laughs> Back here. I guess, in my mind, maybe a better question to ask is, why is it right? Um, because, you know, in the Bible it reads about drunkenness being a sin. So, in my mind, it would be far better to stay far clear from it rather than, than making provision for the flesh. Thank you. Anyone else? Over here. We're to abstain from every appearance of evil. I don't even think we should want to be seen appearing to be drinking, social or otherwise. Up here. I don't think you'd be feeding the spirit by social drinking. And it seems like a good way to feed your flesh. Thank you. Anyone else? Up here. The Bible talks a lot about drinking. It doesn't say anything about smoking, but in our area, um, people put smoking and drinking in the same category, and so would it be acceptable to so- smoke socially is one way you could look at it. Over here. If we're going to suddenly um, say drinking is just terrible evil and put it out with everything, then we better go through all the other lists of evil and put away with all those too. Not saying I believe in drinking. Mm-hmm. You're basically, you're, you're asking for consistency. Mm-hmm. Other comments? All right. To the question, what is social drinking? It's when you have a group of friends over to your house and you do some social activities, maybe a game or whatever you do, and you bring out some kind of alcohol and everybody participates in it in a light manner. And I suppose it's just enough to make them feel a little better and the party goes well. That's social drinking and it's very, very common. What, why is social drinking wrong? But, uh, the scripture does not forbid all alcohol. Um, uh, to some people would take that position. Um, generally, it's not that it's a sin to imbibe a, a small amount of alcohol. 
but there's a whole lot more going on in this situation with social drinking. Uh, first of all, alcohol is to abstain from alcohol is a major wisdom issue. So if you used alcohol in the past, and uh, I grew up in a home that had whiskey up somewhere stored up in the, well, you would call it today a medicine cabinet, I suppose, that there was, it was a leftover from before modern medicines were, were invented and so on, that they actually used alcohol for whatever reasons they thought it was good for. Whether it was effective or not, I'm not going to argue that. So that, that is a part of a, the past, so alcohol was used. But as far as a wisdom issue, uh, if you never take the first drink, you will never become a drunkard. And there are statistics that the person who starts takes that first drink, about 10% actually become addicted to it. And 10% is fairly high. I have nine children, and my wife and I will be one of us statistically if we would drink socially in our home, so to speak. That is at the risk I wouldn't take. So it's a lot of a wisdom issue. Then there are, um, oh my, you can have so many, many testimonies of, uh, of drunkenness. And actually, just a month or two ago, it's my the second cousin of my children. Uh, he's a young married man that did not abstain from alcohol some sort form or another, and he was drunk when he was harvesting and went part ways through the head and is paralyzed, and that's very recent. Uh, alcohol, alcohol has taken its millions down the down the uh, wrong trail. So why is social drinking wrong? It's not a sin, but it, it's a fire that you don't want to play with. That's my. I think actually Romans 14 comes into play here also. We had took a gentleman into our home years ago that grew up unchurched, and he consumed so much alcohol that it left him a bit limited. He was in our home for about a year. He was dealing with a sickness, and so we got some herbs, and he wanted to know if there's any alcohol in it. And I said, well, just a very small amount for preservative. He said, get it away from me. I don't even want to smell it. So if any of us have any kind of a heart to reach out to our society, do them a favor. Don't touch it. Do them a favor. If we're going to reach out to as many of you young men, young ladies, Pottsville, uh, yeah, we just don't want to want to touch it or we will cause our brother to stumble. The question often comes up uh, with the billboard callers is a moderate use of marijuana acceptable? Will I go to hell if I use any marijuana? I don't know how you would answer that, but I guess the Bible doesn't prohibit that either. Uh, and I guess if you just took enough to make yourself happy, you could justify it the same way. 
I usually answer it by saying the Bible forbids drunkenness. And, uh, and the reason is because God wants us to be sober in the sense that we always have the full use of our minds to make wise decisions. And I think the principle is that any of this abuse of, or any use of these substances does, in fact, alter our thinking. And it makes us less capable of making the best decisions. Uh, so I would add that. And I would also say that probably uh, anyone in the world that finds out that the plain people have some use of alcohol would actually be disappointed. They would actually expect that not to be the case. <clears throat> Okay, thank you. We'll move on to the next question. Number three is Revelation 4, verse 5, connected to Isaiah 11:2. When it speaks about the seven spirits of God, and what are the seven spirits of God? I don't have a Bible to read those verses. Um, I'll read them. Okay. Uh, Revelation says and out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunders and voices and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne which are the seven spirits of God that's the revelation passage the Isaiah one says uh, speaking of Christ it's a prophecy and there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of its roots And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom, understanding, spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. Those are the two passages. So are these, those, is Revelation 4, 5 connected to Isaiah 11, 2, and when it speaks about, when it speaks about the seven spirits of God? And what are the seven spirits of God? Anyone here care to respond to that? Up here. There may be a connection there, because you've got the spirit of the Lord, um, the spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel and might, and knowledge, and of the fear of the Lord. So there looks to be... Quite a few there, so that might be what it's talking about. Anyone else? Okay, I look to my panel. Uh, Brother Ian said it might be, (laughs) and that's my answer. Any connection we make is going to be arbitrary. Uh, We do not have any reason to make. an absolute statement about the connection. I read this and I say, I see that cloud I put up here on the board simply describing all the characteristics of God uh, that's available to us. Uh, but to answer the question, I don't know if there's a connection or not. Anyone else? And maybe... Uh... I don't know, the last question was, and what are the seven spirits of God? Is there any comment on on that at all? Isaiah. Isaiah there. Let me just give them again. It's um, wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, 
knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And the first one you missed. Well, yes, it says the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and then it says what that spirit is. Very good. I see them as the characteristics of God. Thank you. All right, our fourth question. Is it appropriate to approach someone of the opposite gender if you see them sinning? Any of our young men care to respond to that? I would say no. I would say if it's a young lady, the men, the young men, she either go to the ministers or to her father and bring it up with her father. Um, for the young ladies, on the other hand, they can bring it to their mother who can tell her husband or, or she can go to her father and he will talk to the young men. It should not be... I don't think that's right. Okay, thank you. Over here. I would say it could vary a little bit on the setting in which it happens. Um, maybe something could be said at a youth function. I don't think that a simple response then would be a problem, but to deliberately track down and address a problem that you saw not just a happenstance and you make a mention to to deliberately go to that person, I would say that that would not be wise and that should be addressed through father or elders. Anyone else? I appreciated your comment there. It depends a little bit as we talked about some of these, looked at some of these questions. Uh, it does depend a little on the setting sometimes, what the actual setting is and what's going on. And so if someone would specifically bring up a setting, sometimes it's easier to answer the question. I also wonder if this is possibly coming with a Matthew 18 concept and not specifically um, saying, well, let's be careful we don't talk to other people about a sin issue. You know, we go one-on-one sometimes that there's a principle there in the word. But I think there's also, as was mentioned here, a clear principle that um, we don't want to go by ourselves of, as it's mentioned here, opposite gender and spend time and sharing and all of that. We would always go, whether if we want to talk to some young lady, my wife and I, or, um, you know, go at this together. So whether it's, it's parents or it's leaders or I think there's a clear uh, principle there to help us to. <clears throat> all through. Okay. All right. I think we'll move on to the next question. Number five. If I have a friend that is sinning behind their parents' back, should I tell them? If I do. If I do not tell, will God hold me accountable for their sin? Did, did you miss one word? Did you say tell them or did you tell on them? Oh, uh, yeah, it does say tell on them. Okay. Yeah, in other words, tell the parents. If I have a friend that is sinning behind their parents' back, should I tell on them? Should I tell their parents? 
If I do not tell, will God hold me accountable for their sin? Any uh, comment or question or response? Up here. Probably the first thing I would recommend doing is going to your own parents and and quietly talk to them about the situation and maybe they can be the ones to approach the other person's parents or at the very least they could give you some wisdom from somebody older. Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, I believe, fits, or Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 16 through 21, talks about Ezekiel being a watchman and how if he doesn't warn the, uh, warn the children of Israel, God's going to require his blood at his hands. I think Christ himself made an allusion to something of that sort as well. So for me, I would approach him if I knew, I would approach the other person if I knew that what they were doing was wrong. I would approach them and tell them, say, look, you should not be doing this. And if, that is, and if they don't take it well, they don't accept it well, or anything of that sort, if they still don't listen, I would go to my parents. And then I would also go to the other person's parents and discuss it with them. And then I would let them handle it from there. So we don't want to just leave sin secret. If if you're not talking about the sin, you're now part. You're now sort of could almost be part of the sin, because you know about it and you aren't doing anything about it. The Bible says, or in the Old Testament, the um, literal translation of the one verse would be, "Thou shalt not suffer. Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart to suffer sin upon him. But thou shalt. You you, you should rebuke him." <clears throat> So, I, yeah, depending on the circumstance, I would go to him first or some other authority. Over here. I guess I would kind of like to add a question to the question, and that is the fear of, is it what I'd be telling on them? Uh, if we see our brother in a sin... Since when are we going to be concerned? Oh, I might, I might tell on him. Let me just let him go on with the sin. I guess I would, I would wonder how principled is that idea that, oh, well, I don't want to tell on him. Well, obviously, if you tell their parents about them, you're going to lose that friendship. So that could be a fear. My question is, is that the kind of friend you want to be with? You know, if you want to be a Christian, do you want to be with, do you want friends that do things behind their parents' back? I think you gentlemen have been teaching these fellows right. <laughs> Any other response, young men? Okay, my panel.
I don't know that there's a whole lot to say. That was answered very well. We know that sin is destructive. And to just look the other way probably is not the kindest thing. If it's a friend, I would suppose that it's not like the question before, opposite gender. So in that case, I think, for the most part, we should try to approach them one-on-one. Definitely not hide it. Not hide it with them. So very well, I think he's answered well. All right, thank you. Our next question, number six. I would appreciate hearing some opinions on illegal tint on vehicles. Is it wrong, and if so, why do so many Christians do it? And uh, illegal tint, I, I guess they're talking about tinted windows, heavy, heavily tinted windows. So what do you think, young men? Maybe you can help us out here. Um, I guess we kind of read through a little bit about that, uh, respecting authorities. Is it a good Christian witness if we know that the law prohibits us from from doing that? Why would we want to overtend our windows? I don't. I think that if you wanted to be a better Christian witness, you could just simply lighten it up to the point that it's legal. Do we have a mic up here? Um, I'd say that if it's illegal, it's probably. I wouldn't do it, especially considering that even if it was legal to do, what's the point of tinting your windows? Um, that's my thought. Anyone else? What do we, what do we have to hide is my question. Would be. If we're tinting our windows dark, very dark or too dark, I mean, why, why would we, what would we, need, what would we need to hide? What's the point? Over here. <laughs> I'm not sure why people do tint their windows up here in Pennsylvania. It don't get very hot. But in Oklahoma and Texas, we do it so we can sit in the seat. So it's cool. Oh, yes. Any more of you young men before I let these fellows state their things on the mic? There's one behind you. Is is there someone up here? Or were you wanting to respond right behind you? The question was asked, and the first thing that I looked at was the losing path up there. I think so many times that kind of thing happens, and we didn't consider what we've heard this week. Any other responses here? Okay. My panel? Yeah. Uh, the, 
there's a rationale behind the law, of course, that the police, when they stop you, they can't see who's in the car. They don't know if a weapon is pointing at you. So there's a reason why it's illegal. And it is illegal, so the question is, um, should you, is it wrong? And if it's illegal, yes, it's wrong. You should not do that. And if so, why do so many Christians do it? Now, they're asking the right person because when I was young, I had a pickup and I put illegal tint on it. And so now I have to tell you, I can tell you why I did it. <laughs> but I would have liked to have you answer that question. Why do? Why would you? But what I, what I did, it, it was cool, but it was not cool because it was hot. <laughs> it, it, it gave the image that I wanted. Because I was a young man, I was insecure, I wanted to raise my status, I wanted to be accepted in the group, and so I wanted to have a nice pickup, and I wanted to make that pickup have the right things on it, and it was, it was totally uh, carnal. I will tell you, I was not a Christian at the time, but I still know why I did it. I think Christians do it for the same reason as non-Christians do it. Okay. The same heart behind it is to try to get status and acceptance and and whatever and maybe some of you can uh, add to what i have said too but so yeah why do christians do it they do it unfortunately and may, maybe there's exception to that i don't know i'm gonna let these brothers speak to that but generally it is for selfish reasons Uh, besides that, there are probably some states where it's legal, probably in the south, Oklahoma, Florida. I know a lot of – and in and, and those states that it's legal, and then lots of vehicles have it, and it's not illegal, and it's common, then it won't raise your status. And, uh, and, and most of the reasons then that I mentioned uh, don't apply, at least not nearly as strongly. Through. Okay. Well, I would just say it really hinders fellowship. I mean, the people in my community will tell you I toot my horn and wave to everybody, and it really does hamper my ex- experience with my brother. <laughs> All right. Question number seven. Some individuals have concern with Sattler College, while others don't. Are there concerns to be aware of? Up here. Yeah, there are dangers by going to to go for going to a secular college. My parents went to a Christian college and it, different Christian colleges and they were, they're not much better. So it would, it's a good question to ask someone who did go to one what they think. But yeah, I don't think, unless you have a call, my dad believes that unless God calls you to go to college, he wouldn't recommend it. Anyone else?
I would definitely agree with you on that one. Um, our family has always believed that there's not really a need to go to college unless you're to become a doctor or unless you need it to go to need a degree to go to the mission field to make it easier. Um, so in that sense of the word, in, in that sense, I would say it doesn't necessarily matter whether it's Sattler College or not. I would, I would pretty much feel that doing that, you've got other reasons behind it, probably to raise your status, to hopefully make more money. I mean, not like college does make you more money. I know of plenty of businessmen that only went to eighth grade, and they are probably more successful than most college students. So for me, I would just not really any purpose other than the fact that it's just not use, it's not necessary. Anyone else? Was that Sattler or Sattler College? Uh, it was Sattler. Sat, Sattler. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Sorry about the misunderstanding. Yep. Up here. Well, there was something that John D. said. Um, not sure which message it was, but. He said that if something can't be found historically in the Christian church, that it should be thrown out. And historically, the Christian church has looked at high education as a bad thing. Um, and I, I would definitely discourage going to any college, even a Christian college. I guess... I would say, I'm not trying to not trying to start an argument with a brother over here beside me, but historically you didn't need to go to college to be a doctor. Um, and I don't think that because the laws have changed it now, it's, it's wrong or a sin for someone to become a doctor or nurse, etc. Um, but any college that you go to, regardless if it's conservative or not, there's still going to be some of the same dangers there that could be cause problems in one's life. And I would say it's definitely not for, not for everyone. Um, I think that it's important that if someone was to go to college that they have their parents' blessing and their church's blessing and they've prayed about it and don't feel that they've been asked otherwise of God. Up here. <clears throat> I agree with Joseph, but I... Yeah. Oh. The trend that I've seen is that there have been in history colleges that have been started by conservative people, and they don't tend to stay conservative. Like, uh, it'd be Messiah, I think. I'm not sure exactly where it is. Messiah College. but Near, near it, Harrisburg. Near Harrisburg. It used to be Church of the Brethren, I believe. But um, it's... Uh, Brethren in Christ. Brethren in Christ. It's not... <laughs> we have a friend that we know, and he had seen, a, like, their newest yearbook or whatever it was, and it showed pictures from... The, like the beginning to now, and it said 
look how far we've gone and how far we've come. He's a plain guy, and he says he thinks it's, well, yeah, it should be see how far we've gone. If you are going to go to Sattler College or any other college like that, just one thing that you should remember is just because it's Christian doesn't mean that you have to be more careful. Everything that gets taught at college should be brought back to the Bible like the Bereans did. Anyone else? All right, to my panel. Ian, you reminded me of an interesting, uh, true story in our own community. Uh, We have a man in our community who did not graduate from high school, and he went and applied at the local school system to be a janitor, and they disqualified him because he didn't have a high school diploma. And so he went on to discover, uh, to uh, establish his own sanitation business in landfill. We called it the garbage man and became a multimillionaire. The local newspaper a couple years ago interviewed him. And uh, so they said to him, you've been such a success without a high school education. What do you think you would have done if you'd had a high school education? He said, I'd have been a janitor in the public school. So it sort, of, it sort of makes your point. <laughs> but my question would be something that wasn't addressed at all, and that is these parachurch organizations. Uh, the, a parachurch organization is an organization that's not organically connected to any church. It just starts up with the idea of being a blessing somehow to, to the kingdom of God. And I'm not opposed to that. I mean, that's how Christian... Well, no, Christian Light started under uh, Southeastern Conference, but it would have been how Faith Builders started. Uh, it would have been how jo- uh, uh, Joseph, uh, John Funk started the, the uh, publishing business in the Mennonite Church. The Mennonite Church has been blessed by many parachurch organizations only if they win the confidence of the local congregations. And the people at Sattler are my friends. I hope they succeed. I don't, I don't wish them anything other than that. But I am waiting to see whether they win the respect of our congregations. Faith Builders has for me, because I know that Faith Builders' purpose is to hold you accountable to your local congregation if you go there as a student, and to return you back to your congregation with an even greater respect and greater determination to be a, a contribution and a blessing to your congregation. It remains to be seen what Sattler's connection to our conservative local Mennonite congregations are. So I'm not giving you a definitive answer. I'm saying we're waiting to see that. And if, con- if they do not win that confidence of the local congregations, then I think it would be a real question for any of our s- students to be going there. They, they owe it to us to win our confidence. And uh, so I, th- I think we have a right to wait to see how that's going to play itself out. I think the men there are fine men. I think they have good intentions. I think you're going to learn a lot of good things. Uh, I'm not making a negative comment at all. I'm simply saying, to me, their success rests on whether they can help us build our local congregations. All through. Okay. 
All right, our next question, number eight. How do I know what my view of God is? And then in parentheses, John D. said, you can tell a person's destiny by their view of God. And so the question, how do I know what my view of God is? Any response up here? The way I've heard it before is what comes to your mind when you think of God. You just, well, you have to do it. And you have to think of God and what comes to your mind when you think of God. What, what do you, how do you think about him? Like, what do you think he is? What kind of fruit are you making? What kind of fruit? Uh, mm-hmm. Others? more of give an example as to what he meant. For example, when I think of God, my thought is majestic, powerful, all-seeing, and yet merciful. And I think that's kind of what, he, what he's getting at, um, or what John D. Martin was getting at. Um, do you get excited? Do you feel subdued? Do you feel joyful? Do you want to praise him? How do you feel about him when you think about him? and realize his attributes and just who he is. I think that we can tell what, how we think about God by the fruit of our life. In other words, how much do we hate sin and love righteousness? Mm-hmm. Anyone else? All right. My panel. Well, they had asked me to uh, address the question. I wanted to say one more thing about Sattler College. If, if you're considering going there, I would ask them to tell to explain their their attitude toward my local congregation. I, I would literally ask that question, and whether I would go there as a student would depend on what kind of answer I got to that question. I I am very committed. Uh, to the idea that the whole point of our Christianity is to give a corporate expression of the kingdom of God. And we're not going to make any progress unless everything we think about is in terms of, is this going to build the local body? Is this going to help us give a better expression of that ideal society, that kingdom set upon a hill? And uh, so you'll find that many of my questions about a variety of subjects has to do with what is going to what what effect is this going to have on the local congregation? So if I were considering going there, that would be the big question in my mind. What do you folks intend to contribute through my coming here to my local congregation? Uh, so to answer this question, I would put one word on the board. <clears throat> That word is actually a contraction. A contraction is when you have a word that has missing letters. 
worship. Now we're talking about, is God number one in your life? Is that how you think about God, that he's number one? And if you really want to know whether you think he is number one, you can find out very easily. Ask your friends what gets you the most excited. Ask the people at work what you talk about the most. Ask your parents what they have observed in terms of your priorities. Is God number one? When he says something, does that settle the issue for you? Is your, do your thoughts all turn to God? And is he number one on your list? Uh, of course, as Christians, we say, of course he is. But the person that's number one in our list is the person that's going to get us the most excited. <laughs> your number one passion is connected to your number one value. Uh, so I would say that uh, you should test. We all should. I should test uh, my, what, is, what are my thoughts about God. Is he the ultimate? Is he the last word? Is he the highest value? Is that how I think about God? All right, thank you. We'll go on to number nine. The Trinity, the word Trinity, is not found in the Bible. It does talk about the Godhead. Isn't the Trinity man trying to figure out God? Should we not let God be who he is and not put him in a box? Several questions in one there. Uh, Any uh, thought, any response? Waiting for our theologians to tell us. Okay, up here we have one. I would say that we should not put God in a box. Every time we do, he gets out. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) If we aren't careful and we try to even, even try to figure out who God is and we try to put him in a certain place, we try to figure him out. I mean, oh, the depth of the unsearchable riches of Christ. I mean, it's so deep, we will never get to the bottom. We only see him dimly. We don't know. We, we cannot fully understand. So, to, in a way, I would say we should not try to put him in a box. We should not try to figure out who he is. We can try to figure out his attributes. That's, that's a good thing. See who, what his attributes are. See what he's like. But it's probably not a good idea to <laughs> figure out where he fits. Try to, try to know the exact bounds of who he is because he has no bounds. I don't know the details, but I know the early church had had a big... I don't know, debate or something on this. I, I'd like to hear more about it. I don't know. Anyone else? Here. Can you read the part of the question again about the Trinity? The Trinity is not found in the Bible. 
word Trinity. Yeah, the word Trinity is not found in the Bible. It does talk about, the Bible does talk about the Godhead. Isn't the Trinity, the concept of the Trinity, man trying to figure out God? Should we not let God be who he is and not put him in a box? So, I think that if, if I understand the question correctly, the question was about whether by saying that God is three parts, we're trying to figure out God. But I definitely believe that God is three parts. And the Trinity is the word, like try means three. That, so that's the word describing the three parts of God, not the study of who he is. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah, I'm not the best theologian on this panel, but uh, I have two parts. Two parts of the answer to that: um, Isn't Trinity man trying to figure out God, and should we not let God be who He is and not put Him in a box? I think we should understand God the best we can. The scripture gives a lot of definitions of God from many different angles and perspectives and, of course, his, his experience and so on. So uh, that's not putting God in a box. That is understanding who God is. And, and the more better you can, the better you understand God, the better off. But God is... Not like any other subject, like was already mentioned. You can take any subject and you can go at all angles and all around it and you can examine it from up and down, inside and out, and you can examine any subject. You cannot do that with God because you cannot get all around God. You will not understand him. And so you will not put God in a box. Uh, it's, It's impossible. But then to say that the word Trinity is not in the Bible, obviously... There's the three parts, uh, just the one verse. Um, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. There you have the Godhead, but you also have the Trinity, whichever way you describe it. But most of the time when the issue of Trinity comes up, is has to do with the person of Jesus Christ. Who is he? Is he God or is he something else? And if he is God, how did he relate and all that? And the Jehovah's Witnesses would say he's the first of creation. Then he's not God. He's not eternal. And there we have a problem. And there's other descriptions. Well, the Mormons say Jesus was the brother of the devil. And one went wrong and the other did not and whatever. And I don't understand it. Maybe you do more. But so... I think the word Trinity is a fine word to describe God, but you're not, if you actually, that word, the whole concept of the Trinity and the Godhead and the three parts and they're one, if you're going to ever figure that out, you'll probably need to end up in an insane asylum because you cannot logically get all those ends together. And yet it's true. And accept it by faith. Um, yeah, not going to put God in the box.
The issue with the Jews and the Muslims that I talk to all the time is that we are polytheists. And I remind them that Exodus says, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And I say, Jesus never usurped the place of his father. He always said, in fact, the Bible says the head of Christ is God. Uh, And so Jesus always said, I don't do anything but what he tells me to do. I don't say anything but what he tells me to do. My meat is to do his will. I always honor him. And in the end, I'm going to give everything back to him. Mm -hmm. So nobody's putting Jesus in the place of God. Uh, But he does have the same nature that God has, that he does. Uh, But God is his head. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, the head of Christ is God. Mm -hmm. So we're not polytheists, even though we do believe in the deity of Christ. Okay. Our last question, and our time is all, is, is, uh, has expired on us, but we'll address this one yet. A little bit of a lengthier one. What does God honor as a marriage? And then it gives some examples. Two people living together, two people leaving their parents and living together, question mark. An actual wedding ceremony or celebration. Uh, does, it, does a legal documentation hold any weight with God? When two people live together and separate, are they free before God to marry someone else because they never legally got married? So what does God honor as a marriage? Along with all the examples there. I think that there's a difference between two people living together and um, two people living together that have promised to stay faithful to each other. Um, I even think that the spiritual world sees the difference. Um, I know a lot of couples that live together find... I shouldn't say a lot. I know of a couple couples that live together for several years, no problems, and then they got married. Within a couple months, they broke up because I guess the devil knew they were fine. He didn't touch them, but as soon as um, God sanctified that, he got in there to mess it up. Right here. I think that our conscience will tell us whether we're bound to somebody or not. Even, well, I've heard of people that have got, gotten married when they were, they were drunk. Like they, they just met somebody and decided to marry them. And when they sobered up, they, they're still bound because they made a vow to serve somebody for life. Um, in the case of somebody living with another person, that's more of down the lines of sin. Um, I consider that fornication and um, indulgence in um, sin. And so I would more put that in the category of that and not marriage. And I would think they should separate and be fine. I don't think I'd consider that a marriage at all, I guess. Anyone else? I would agree that it has to do with um, that there is a difference between 
living together with a promise towards each other and just living together. Um, I would feel that if there is a promise to each other, that needs to be witnessed by others, which is the point in a marriage ceremony or is what we normally do with a wedding. Um, that's where I find that is very necessary. You have witnesses. You know there's others keeping track of you. You know there's others that are doing that. You're not just living together. And living together without anything like that is definitely fornication. I would say either be married or else separate. And that's just, that's just the way I see it with God's word. All right, we'll look to our panel. I think we're going to have to face this more and more as we go on and we seek to minister to people. I think the wrestle with what a marriage is is going to be more and more pertinent to us as the world just continues to make a terrible mess. And as I've pondered it, and I <coughs> mentioned it to them, and they said it was okay to say. Something I've been pondering as I watch a marriage in a village in Africa to the states to before a justice of peace to our churches and grappled with this, what do we call a marriage? I've just pondered and wondered if there's not something of when there's an authoritative voice over the union of two, a man and a woman, there's something about that authoritative voice that gives a stamp of approval. Again, whether it's in a Muslim setting and there's an imam, or whether it's a justice of peace, or whether it's in our church service, we, when there's that stamp of approval of an authority, it creates a bond. And God honors some, a, that, that stamp of approval that, that goes along with the marriage. So sometimes it's a whole different setting, a whole different ceremony, and a whole different style or without a ceremony. But when there's a clear understanding that there's an authority behind this blessing it, and saying this is two coming together. It seems like God honors that too. So whether you go again from Genesis, Adam and Eve, to you know, various things you can find in the Bible, Isaac and Rebecca, you know, it feels to me it's consistent. There's an authority that's saying we're behind this. So there's some comments in light of what is a marriage. <laughs> Does the legal documentation hold any weight with God? Um, Mick, what Mick described was a, is a generally publicly recognized method that, that brings that bond. I think of the early Anabaptists when they, they separated the church and state. They would not be a part of the, of the state church. Therefore, the state church would not, they couldn't get married unless they were members of the church. And they were not members of the church because they belonged with the wrong church. So they couldn't get married legally. But they got married among themselves. The state viewed it as illegitimate. But among themselves as a community, it was a publicly understood authoritative marriage in God's sight. So you do get real situation, and yet it is not. And I didn't hear exactly what one of the young men said, but it's more than just a a vow between each other. It has to be publicly understood that this is it, that has to have that authority voice. 
through. Very well. That brings us to the end of our ten questions. Thank you. Thank you, uh, young men, for your participation. Tomorrow, some of you that haven't spoken today will have have opportunity. (laughs) Just preparing you. Anyhow, so we are run. We did run over time just a little bit here. So uh, let's plan to regroup in 15 minutes. At uh, basically, it'll be four, three fifty-five. Yeah, five minutes to four. You're dismissed. <laughs>